I grew up with music, took piano lessons, you know, as, as an early kid and, and threatened to quit every single year. So I kept threatening to quit and then an older sort of friend who approached me and invited me to join the band. Now playing in a rock and roll band and that changed everything. Don't mean to brag, but we won our sixth grade talent show. Part of the draw for Vanderbilt was uh, a, I got in, <laughs> always helpful, um, and, and B, the, the, the music industry. I think I'm the only songwriter in the history of Nashville who negotiated his draw down, not up, because I just really wasn't sure I wanted to do it long term. And so I probably didn't put my heart all the way in. If that sounds like the textbook coming to Nashville story, you're right. Almost. From the Chase studio at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, you're listening to Circle Back. This is the show where Nashville's most dynamic entrepreneurs share their stories of startup success and stumbles. I'm your host, Clark Buckner. This episode features one of our very own EC entrepreneurs in residence. He was co-founder of the tech darling startup Emma, Clint Smith. This episode is brought to you by financial planning and investment advisor, Haas Goodwin Wealth. Thanks to our media partner, The Nashville Post. And thanks to Lightning 100 for also helping get the word out. This show is a production of the Nashville Entrepreneur Center. Here's our COO, John Murdoch, to share more. We live in a city filled with successful entrepreneurs that made Nashville what it is today. Booming in healthcare, publishing, music, and entertainment, among other industries. We strive to keep the pulse of Nashville's entrepreneurship alive by providing resources for entrepreneurs to start and grow their businesses. The EC provides unmatched support for local entrepreneurs through best-in-class programming and an experienced staff with a strong track record of successful alumni companies. As a nonprofit organization, the EC depends on support from generous donors at all levels, whether they're giving their expertise, money, or other resources. Join us to learn more at our annual Next Awards, where we recognize highly successful entrepreneurs and induct them into the EC's Hall of Fame. It's an event you will remember Visit ec.co to learn more. To hear Clint's story, I visited his home in the Belmont Boulevard neighborhood. Do you want me to go around the side or straight through? And and ultimately, um, they were trying to to kind of make me into a little bit of a country uh, sort of writer, and that just wasn't wasn't really a fit. It's 1989. Clint's a junior at Vanderbilt, and he lands a dream internship, doing what he loves, music. At a publishing company um, called Pride Music Group, Charlie Pride's music um, publishing house. And so um, did sort of odds and ends intern work there. And, and re- eventually, I guess they trusted me enough where they'd let me be the first line of, of review for cassettes that came in. So if you, you, you imagine you're that, you're that guy in Iowa, right, who's poured his heart and soul onto you know, this demo recording that you ship off to Nashville and cross your fingers. I might have been the kid who listened to it and either handed it off or put it in the trash can. <laughs> and so that was my that was my song, right, my publishing house experience, um, which was fun. And then um, they eventually got to the point where they allowed me to write a few things myself and um, would allow me to go, to go record those, you know, kind of with some session players. And, and it was a, a fantastic experience. And, and the coolest part was basically as long as you wrote something that they 
they halfway liked, you know, they, they pay for you to go get it recorded. And to, so to take this idea from nothing to a, a really well-recorded, well-crafted demo, because these session players are obviously just amazing, um, in a matter of a few weeks was, was really something else. And I would hang out with a couple of the other, other songwriters who were way older than I was. And, you know, they'd get a song that was on hold, basically kind of reserved for an album. And they'd be on top of the moon and they'd be like, oh man, songwriting is the life. This is awesome. You ought to do this, right? And, and then two weeks later, they'd find out the song was cut and it didn't make the album. And they'd be like, ah, just go to law school. Just get out of here. <laughs> right? And it was just this really sort of up and down experience. And, and it, I guess that scared me a little bit after a couple of years of doing that. I sort of put it down a little bit. And, and it was also, though, because I, I'd taken a day job to sort of, you know, do the nine to five thing while I was songwriting. It was a tremendous experience in terms of learning some things, um, making some lifelong friends, but also really eye-opening in terms of how not to, to do company culture. Following a good idea to its end, that was songwriting. And from that first nine to five, Clint sensed what not to do, and that notion stuck and would shape everything to come. There's some things I like here, but there, there are a lot of things I don't. Um, and I, I'll never forget, they, um, when they came up with their values, they outsourced that effort and hired an outside firm to help them come up with their values, which is always a bad sign, right? When you have to pay other strangers to do that for you. And they came up with their 10 values and they printed them on t-shirts. We all got t-shirts with the values on them. And as a bit of a grammarian, like my, um, which anyone Emma will, will make fun of me for, it bugged me to no end that the, the 10 values would be like adjective, adjective, noun, adjective, adverb. <laughs> I was like, can, can you not just settle on a part of speech at least? You know, even if you can't decide what your own values are. So it was an interesting experience, but it wasn't, you know, really for me and it wasn't in healthcare. And, and and I just got really lucky that at that point, um, when I was burning out there, a company called City Search came to town. CitySearch.com was one of the earliest internet companies in Nashville. Working there exposed Clint to the unique West Coast startup culture. He found that collaborative mindset to be intriguing and welcoming. They seemed to know their own values and live them. There weren't executive suites. Everybody was out in the open and it was super flat, sort of hierarchically and lots of energy and lots of, of smart, energetic people running around the place and, and lots of great ideas and good things happening. And they were building city guides around the country and decided they wanted to go to tier two markets, including Nashville. And so just got really lucky. Like that's probably one of those sliding door moments where had City Search not come to town, uh, you know, I'm not sure what my path would have been. But I got to stay in Nashville in the mid-90s and work for a very modern web-based you know, company and, and see that whole experience, right? And so I had a, a job that was sort of peripherally sales and then moved into the editorial side of things and ultimately was the editor of the Nashville site. And so again, um, made some lifelong friends, worked alongside some really, really smart, cool, fun people, but now got to see a, a pretty well-run company. My name is Will Weaver. Um, I was the CTO and co-founder for Emma with Clint Smith. Clint and Will had been co-workers who really clicked. They didn't have a specific business in mind when one day they met over coffee. And I said, you know, I've, I've been 
back where I started, you know, working on this, uh, working at this company, but I really want to go out and do something different and new. And I think we should do something together. And I thought I was going to have to, it was going to require, you know, some convincing, but I don't think we needed more than one meeting to just say, yeah, let's, let's do this. <laughs> we're not quite sure what we were going to do yet. You know, we knew that we could rely on kind of the, the work that we'd done, like, me doing website design stuff, he writing copy. We thought that, you know, surely we can get a couple um, contracts or, you know, clients and and just see what happens. And we sat at Fido uh, at one of the tables and talked about um, doing something. And, and we didn't really know what, you know, but we said, all right, well, we do know some things, right? Um, we think this internet thing's going to work. So let's focus on that. We know we want to build a software product that gets us ultimately a, a really broad reach and you know, something beyond our, our billable hours, right? And it'll probably be something not drastically different than the worlds we've been in, in terms of online community building or marketing, or et cetera. So that was it. And, and we said, in the meantime, maybe we just team up on and do some projects together since Will could handle the design side and I could handle the content side. And so, and that's essentially where we, where we started. How did you come up with the name? Well, so, 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 Emma, so Emma was not the first name, right? We didn't know about Emma for, for several months. Instead, we said, well, let's, we just need a home for the freelancing, and it's going to be typically sort of website work, et cetera. And for some reason, came up with the name Cold Feet Creative as perhaps an homage to, to the fact that we were, you know, stepping into this with some confidence, but also maybe some trepidation, right? And, um, and started doing work. Whoa. The two set out on a sales call on the city paper. That was a free weekly publication that ultimately closed 13 years later. The feedback they received in that meeting would be oddly pivotal. And it was under the auspices of, of getting some website work, right? Expanding kind of their web presence, etc. And he starts the meeting by saying, you know what, I actually think we ought to do less with our website, not more. And so, you know, as, as two people who were there to hopefully win some new business, it was clearly not going to be a very productive meeting, right? And we doesn't go anywhere, and we walk out, and we're like, you know what? He's not wrong. Like at some point, you can't just keep pouring money into your website. Like you've got to do other stuff. And this is when websites were king. Like it was the flash was new, and you were building all these crazy, you know, multiple page interactive, right? All all the new you know whiz bangs, right? And, um, and we're like, he's not wrong, though. At some point, you have to focus on the other aspect of things, right? Potentially getting your message out to people, drawing them to this thing with all the new flashy bells and whistles, right? And so we started thinking about it. Cold Feet Creative began dipping its toes into mass emailing. This is something businesses needed, but didn't quite know how to do it themselves. And we'd used a couple of email service providers and thought they were crap, honestly. And that was in, in those early days, like we had, whenever we wanted to send an, an email newsletter out at small business, we had to call the firm and say, hey, we'd like to push one of these out in the next couple of days. So it was clearly early for the technology and the, the user experience was terrible and just it wasn't great. And the more we looked around, the more we felt like the handful of people that were doing it were also not great and that we could do better. Particularly since we cared, we knew coming into it, we cared a lot about the content and the flow and just the whole experience, right, of how you interact with the product and, and the brand around it. So we just didn't see anything that, that kind of met those standards in the market. 
And we said, all right, well, maybe we just keep digging into this. And, and so it was, again, sort of step by step, right? A very methodical you know, process. I then took a look at the market and created an Excel spreadsheet kind of for each one mapping out what they charged and what their feature, key features were and where they seemed strong and where, where they seemed you know, weak, all that good stuff. And that looked pretty good. And we're like, all right, well, there's some people doing this and there are a lot more who are sort of doing this, but not really. But it still seems there's like there's an opening. And so we started to picture what how we would fill that gap. And we started to design some screens of what the product might look like. And, you know, we felt pretty good about how it might compare to other people in the market, but we needed customer feedback. So we started to identify some friends who worked in different places who could sit down with us and tell us if we had something right that they would that they would use. So the Belcourt Theater was the very first one. And I think we just said, all right, well, who, who would use this? Um, who would have reason to send, you know, emails out pretty regularly, let's say weekly, to a pretty large group of people? And we're like, well, a movie theater slash event space would. And we didn't know anybody at Regal or AMC or whatever. So we we, we knew somebody at, at, at Belcourt. And... Um, and we walked over there and showed it to them, and, and they, they liked it, and they had a few ideas, and we went back and we tweaked a little bit, and we said, you know, well, who else would use this? Well, how about a nonprofit? And so we found one of those, and, uh, you know, obviously somebody in retail. And so we kind of mapped into the different potential customer groups that we wanted to, this to work for, and just found some examples here in town, and just asked them if they would be willing to give us some, some thoughts. Um, and they were all very gracious and did. The Belcourt Theater never paid for Emma. Um, because their feedback was so valuable. And, and not only that, but obviously, you know, not only, you, you know, the feedback itself was great, and then we could go back and say, what well, is this better? And what do you think now? And then eventually we could go back with an actually functioning product and say, okay, you said this is what you wanted, you know, is it, well, you prove it, right? And sure enough, they started to use it. So that was incredibly helpful. But of course, it also allowed us to go around Nashville and say, well, the Belcourt uses this, and, and they, they love, love it, right? And yeah. everybody loves the Belcourt. Email marketing was brand new. Like when we were selling, we the, our competitor was the stamp, like USPS. That's Sarah McManigle, part of the backbone of Emma. Clint Smith hired her as an intern from Belmont. So when I started, it wasn't called Emma. It was Cold Feet Creative. They had just launched, I guess, version one of Emma. And um, I think that they were because uh, Marcus was there and Annie was there um, and they were working on version two anyway. So I saw Cold Feet Creative and I'm like, well, that looks cool. And that's why I applied. Like, <laughs> just like, that's a fun name. <laughs> and I couldn't even tell you what the job description was, anything like that. I'll never forget the interview. It was absolutely incredible. Um, and I, I, before I went in for the interview, I'd, I'd emailed and asked like, Hey, what's the dress code there, which every business school instructs you to do. And Clint responded with, uh, it'd probably be appropriate if you wore a hot dog suit. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> like, wait, is this real? It turned out that Sarah, who had also once had her eyes set on the music business, had a knack for sales. I was comparing like, hey, do you want to spend three cents per email? Because it was like 30 bucks for a thousand emails a month. You want to spend that or you want to spend whatever it was that a stamp was then? <laughs> they didn't have forever stamp. It was like 32 cents an email. And so like that was what we were competing against or people trying to build their own. It was really interesting time. And what Clint and Will had at that, they were able to take something that was intimidating and scary 
in the technology space and make it friendly and approachable and, and usable. And that was from the product and that's how they treated the employees, um, everyone. But, you know, now looking back, no one had, we had no idea what we were doing. And I thought it was just because I was young, <laughs> but you know, looking back, they didn't know what they were doing either because they'd never done it before. I uh, kept checking the National Chamber of Commerce website and I saw an ad for operations manager. That was the title of the job posting that Clint and Will were looking for because at that point it was just the two of them. And and I was like, oh, I am not an operations person. I had been working in sales and marketing in the music business. And, um, but I, so I clicked through to the website and I read all of the copy on the website. And I was like, these are my people. I, I don't care what they're doing. I don't care if they're, you know, building igloos. I don't care. I need to meet, these are my people. Hi, my name is Annie Kennard Williams, and I started at Emma as the first employee in 2003. I was most proud of the culture. And I don't mean culture in like, when we used to talk about this a lot internally, that when we say culture, everyone in a web-based startup, there sort of became a stereotype for what that culture was that it was like ping pong tables and bagel Wednesdays. And, and that is not necessarily what was exciting about the culture to me. It was fun. Uh, it made it a fun place to go. But for me, it was more about how willing Clint and Will were from the very beginning to share the ownership, which ultimately leads to like an incredible sense of accomplishment. I think there were a couple of moments where we, where it felt like it was going to work. The first one really was when we started to see customers sign up pretty consistently, right? That was probably, in all, in all honesty, the biggest moment because you've put so much time and effort into this product. You think it's going to work. People who should be customers have told you they'll totally use it. And then you're sort of to the moment where They've got to show that they were, that they were, you know, serious about it. And then you've got to sell it to, to strangers, right? And when you started, when we started having, you know, really good luck signing up strangers and not just in Nashville, but in other places, because the thing about, about Emma, just like other email providers of the time and even to this day, like a lot of them will have their own logo at the bottom, like powered by Emma or powered by whoever. And so what happens is you'll, you'll sign up someone who has a list of 5,000 people, if you've done your job to make sure that that goes out well and it's well designed, what have you, you've set them up for success. They send it out, and some people on that list of five thousand are not just going to say, "I'm interested in whatever they had to say," but "Wow, I'm interested in doing this myself. This looks pretty good. How did they do it?" And they scroll down and they see our logo. And so we'd have these little pockets of interest pop up, right? So Portland, Oregon, you know, sort of turn red on the map, right? You know, or green or whatever, you know, because we had somebody out there sign up, and suddenly we have people receiving emails from that person, powered by us, and so. That was that was fun. So when we saw enough sort of momentum building with early customer response, with them paying us real money to use the service and then continuing to pay us several months later, I think that was the moment we thought, all right, we're we're kind of onto something. This is this is going to go okay. Um, and then of course when we when we saw the lines cross and got to profitability, which we could see coming, 
right? I mean, that, so it wasn't like a surprise. It wasn't like this grand moment because you're moving your way slowly toward it, you know, $30 account after $30 account. But still, when we, when we saw the lines officially cross, that was a tremendous moment, right? We were suddenly, we, we knew that we were, you know, we knew we, we knew we controlled our own destiny. At this point, Clint and Will have assembled a great team. They're gaining traction and they're getting customers. But when and how do they raise some money to grow this faster? We had something that was functioning. We had a handful of customers uh, using it. And we eventually reached the point where we needed some help. We couldn't do it ourselves alone anymore. And so that's probably the moment where we said, all right, this is getting pretty serious. We need to hire people. And if we need to hire people, we need a little bit of money. So we hired a guy named Steve to come in and help us kind of flesh out the, the executive summary. I think, I don't even know that pitch decks were really a thing yet, but executive summaries were right. So words on paper. And so we did that. And then he did something really helpful for us, which is to go out and do some competitive reviews, right? So that he could come back and say, you know, this is, if we're thinking about going after some angel money, some friends and family at the very least, how do we value the company? Well, let's, let's use, let's get some competitive sort of math in here. And he came back a couple weeks later and he put a big binder down on the table in front of us and said inside this binder for all of our kind of top five competitors, are their revenues last year, what they think the revenues are, will be this year, how many people are on staff, how many of those people are engineers, how many of those people are salespeople, how many servers they have, where the servers are located, how many customers they have, how many of those customers, and you're like, oh my God. And, and, I, and I have to back up and say that Steve was a, a former Navy SEAL. And so we're like, how did you do this Navy SEAL guy? Did you like put the scuba gear on and swim underneath their headquarters and like come up under the safe? Like what, what happened? And he's like, honestly, I just called someone in sales and said, I'm interested in taking a look at your product. And salespeople like to talk. And that's how he got it. And so it was, it was incredibly validating because you know, he was able to point the companies that had a three or four year head start on us and say they were doing the kind of revenues that we said we might be able to do three or four years from now. So it made us feel like we weren't crazy. And then it made us feel better about potentially walking it out to other people. And so we did, and we thought we would get some, raise some friends and family money like everybody does. And Peggy Craig at SunTrust, who Will's family had, had worked with for, for ages, sat down with us and I tell you what, you know, why don't we just start with a line of credit for you guys and it'll get you a little bit further down the line. You can build out this product, you can get some more customers, get some paying customers, you know, know what you want, have a little bit more leverage and then, then you go raise some money. And, uh, and so we did that and we took out a line of credit with them. We, we spent all of that over the course of the next you know, year, whatever, and then we needed more. But by that point we were making great progress and, and Peggy and the bank felt good. And so they gave us a little bit more and um, that ended up being our startup capital. Things seem to be going smoothly, but not so fast. Something's about to happen that could derail everything. As we had sort of several hundred customers on, um, and essentially the alpha version of the, of the platform, uh, we had been scrambling to build the, the next version, what we considered kind of the real, the real product. Um, and we were close, and we were in this sort of quandary where the, the original product was dying, 
Uh, we had all these customers on it. The new product was a little bit unproven, but seemed ready. And so we felt like it, you know, we, we had no choice but to move all wholesale all the customers over to the new product. The new product didn't work. And you know, when you've got several hundred customers who are relying on you to help them send their emails out, in some cases their newsletters that they're counting on, their sales pieces, their mark, like whatever, this, this is their lifeblood, right, in some cases. Um, and it suddenly doesn't work and, and they can't do that thing that they, they're paying you to be able to do. You can imagine um, you know, what kind of chaos that, that creates. Hang with us, because after the break, we'll tell you exactly how Clint and the whole Emma team made it through. Meet Art Haas. He's the CEO and managing partner at Haas Goodwin Wealth. Most of our clients, when they come to us, have experienced some level of success. You know, our clients have taken risk in their lives, and so our job is to help them take the fruits of that labor and to maintain it and grow it. They work with their clients and their clients' families. As they transition from different points in their lives and then also to think about that next generation and to help them with educating their, their own families and their children and their children's children about how to you know, effectively manage the success that the previous generations have provided for them. Reach out to their friendly and helpful team at HawesGoodwin.com. Make your mark. Together, we'll make sure it lasts. Look, this was just not simple. Marcus Whitney was one of those working nonstop to get Emma back online. You know, we have to rewrite it while the company is operating. You know, so it's just, it's just a brutal experience, quite frankly. He reflects back on the crisis with pain, but also pride. You're the only two people who can actually do it. Everyone else there is trying to be supportive, but they can't really help you. Rewriting an entire system that already had meaningful paying clients on it. We had to redo all of the interfaces. We had to redo the billing system. This is 2003, 2004, Clark. There's no cloud computing right? Like there's no, so many of the things that you have today to build an application did not exist. So we were like writing all of those things. Look, I was never like the, the, the super best programmer in the world, but I will put up that feat against, you know, a lot of stuff that I see being built today, quite frankly. And all we would do is pick up the phone when it rang and tell people how sorry we were and to give them the honest update as best we knew it and to tell them to please hang with us and offer them the month free, whatever we could do. And we'd respond to emails the same way. And that's all we did. And then we'd, and the phone ring again, and you do the same thing over and over again. And so then we would go drink at the end of the day. <laughs> we would come back the next morning and go back that night, right? And, and do the same thing all over again. Um, so it was a bonding experience, right? Not, not one you would wish on yourselves, but, um, but, it, but it was, certainly was that. Um, but it was also a tremendous lesson in, um, I guess, the power of, of, of brand relationship but also just human decency. We said the things that we rarely hear from other companies even now, like, I'm sorry, we, we so screwed up, <laughs> right? We did the things that people ought to do for each other, right? When you think of the other person on the line, other the line, not as a, as a consumer, but as a person. And it paid off, so much so that the end of this two weeks, and even then, when the software came back online, it was a little buggy for a while, right? So it was a while before it was, it was sort of perfect again. We lost two customers through that out of hundreds from that fiasco, just two. 
And six months later, one of them came back to us. And the other one had always been kind of a jerk, so we didn't care. The lesson of treating people with kindness stayed with them for years to come. But when you live through things like that, everybody gets it. Everybody looks around and we're like, when we talk about taking good care of people, that's what we mean. And it matters even more in the worst of circumstances, right? So those were the experiences that really stuck with us. And I think it just got us all thinking even more from that point forward, like how can we go really out of our way above and beyond to take extra care of, of the people in our universe? And so it led to a bunch of things. Annie was the one who really spurred the conversation about giving back for the first time. In ways like at the end of every year, every employee was given $250 to give to a nonprofit. So go find the thing that you care about. And here's some of the company's money for you to do some good. We started the Emma 25 program where every year, for years and years and years, we would ask our customers to tell us if there were causes in their, in their neighborhoods and their communities that could use a product like Emma and didn't have the money for it and to please nominate them. And our team would sift through those nominations and pick 25 and give the service away for life. We started Emma sabbaticals where after five years of service, you got a month off um, in addition to your regular you know, vacation time that year to go do something, I don't know, maybe you otherwise wouldn't do. And you certainly couldn't do with, with, with a long weekend or a week. And so, um, you know, we took the family to Spain because we wanted to go take the kids on a you know, world adventure. Uh, we had people go take improv lessons in New York, um, do things again that they never would have had time to do. Just go hit reset, right, and, and come back refreshed. How did the end of Emma for you happen? I was again thinking, all right, I, I probably shouldn't do this forever, right? It's, it's probably not great for me, and it's probably not great for the company either. And so I started to have those kinds of feelings a little bit, right, as I as I looked out into the into the future and. And, um, and not only that, right, you know, we were still having fun, but the market had changed, right? And there were, there were a lot more competitors and some really good ones. And, and there were people, you know, buying other companies kind of like ours. And, and those seemed like, you know, good deals for everybody. And also, with all that in mind, a few of us sat down uh, outside Pinewood Social at one of the tables and said, okay, does this feel like the right path for us to set down? And we all said, yeah, it kind of it does for all, all those reasons, right? And so we... We decided that was that was going to be the, the, the plan uh, for the next few years. And, and we said, well, what kind of number do we think if we imagine this happening in three years, what kind of number would we aspire to in terms of the deal itself? And we all wrote it on a piece of paper and flipped it over and it was the same number, which is helpful, right? And so we said, all right, we kind of know what we want to do. And it set a, a string of events in, in motion, right? So we said, all right, well, if that's going to happen, uh, we probably need some help. Right, we need a board like we haven't really had of directors before. Um, and we probably need a little bit of capital to work with so that we can beef up the leadership team in particular, we can accelerate some things like sales and and really make sure we're getting in position, you know, a couple of years from now. So we did this, we raised a little bit of money with, with Nashville Capital Network um, and, and they helped us, you know, build out the board a little bit. And with the board's help, uh, we identified a couple of things we needed, one of which was a, a, was a, a really high powered C, CFO. Um, Obviously, if we were going to, you know, plan for, you know, something like an acquisition and all of the work that you had to do to get buttoned up ahead of time and all the diligence that that might require and who knows what might happen on the other side of it, right? So uh, CFO became sort of our first order of business. And, and the more we thought about it, uh, the more I thought, you know, if we find the right CFO, 
this could be our future CEO. They cut a check to hire a professional recruitment firm to begin the process. And then, shortly after, Clint happens to hear a name mentioned at a neighborhood cookout, Welford Dillard. And we go back to work, and that Monday, we get the first candidate list back from the recruiters. And lo and behold, the top five, Welford Dillard. And I had two reactions. I'm like, first of all, couldn't we have had that cookout like two weeks ago? Um, and secondly, I think Welford might be the right guy. I mean, if he's, if he's showing up in a couple of different ways, maybe this is the universe telling us that he's the man. So sure enough, like we, we had a phone call that went really well. I flipped to DC and we had a coffee. And, and, and just like those moments with, with Annie and Allison and Marcus and Bo and Sarah and God, so many folks right over the years, this was another one of them. We had sort of spent the time and effort to build out a really good team, not just to get us to that point, but to, but in my mind, to get us through it, right? Um, and again, some of it was, was personally driven, right? I, I knew that I probably wasn't wired to stick around, right? Um, when, I, when I leave something, I like to walk away. We believed right from the start that if, if all of these people that we you know, sort of envisioned joining us right at some point uh, were going to come in and, and, and for, for, in some cases, many years, right, give us their, their time and their effort and in some case, many cases their heart and soul, right, that damn it, they ought to have a, have a stake in this um, beyond the paycheck and, and beyond the perks. On the day of, of closing, every, every single person, um, you know, shared in that at a financial level. And when we finally closed and went into the bistro for um, a launch and then a celebration later, um, you know, it was, a, it was a room full of high fives and handshakes and hugs and everything you would hope that moment would be. Um, and then, um, as planned, I walked out of the office and didn't walk back in. When Clint left Emma for the final time, they had created hundreds of jobs, countless friendships, and changed Nashville's tech landscape forever. Today, Clint Smith is often spotted back at Fido or Bongo Java, meeting with entrepreneurs, sharing what he learned. His circle back story also extends to the work he does here at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center. As always, to learn more about our programs, either as an entrepreneur or someone looking to mentor, or maybe somewhere in between, visit us at our brand new refreshed website at ec.co. And to subscribe to the show, head on over to ec.co slash circleback. From the Chase Studio, Circle Back is brought to you by the generous support of the Beth and Randy Chase family. Additional support for season one is from Haas Goodwin Wealth. A big thanks to our team, from our creator and executive producer, Greg Allen, script writing by Demetria Kaladimos, and production support from Gaines Allen. I'm Clark Buckner, and we'll see you soon on another episode of Circle Back. <laughs>